You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing all right. I feel like... uh We've emerged from the post-apocalyptic wasteland that we were living in before. Now you can actually see a little bit of sky here and there, see some clouds. You can see more than like 15 feet in front of you in the distance here in Missoula. You see everybody walking around town. They look like they just got released from prison. We're breathing here. Yeah. We're breathing, Benny. We've been here a million times before. I saw the uh, sky in our town described on Facebook today as blue enough. That's right. By a a user, which I thought was... uh, was pretty apt. It's a pretty good description. Yeah. I'm happy with it. Uh, hockey update. How we doing? How's the team? We got the season off to a rollicking start with a tie. A 1-1 tie. Woo! Finding our feet, our skates underneath us, as it were. Also, uh, the other team's lone goal in that game was scored by a dude who is obviously not a novice. And I'm not going to be the person that complains about the guy who's way better than novice level playing in novice hockey and then going out there and scoring goals because it's kind of obviously a bullshit thing and nobody needs to say it's bullshit because we all know it's bullshit. You should feel like a bullshit person. But I'm not going to be the guy that complains about that. Sandbagging. You're telling me there's sandbagging going on down there at the uh, novice level Missoula Co-Rec Hockey League? You said it. I didn't say that. Uh, some could say. It, it could be said. Okay, how do we get the goods on this guy or or girl, this person? How do we get the goods on this person? Is there some way that we can uh, verify some kind of previous hockey experience that would disqualify him or her from the league? Maybe what I need to do is hire Chad Dundas' private eye. Yeah, hockey private eye. That's right. Most of my cases involve hockey. I don't know if you want to limit yourself. That's kind of a a narrow range for your whole private eye business to be based on. But, uh, you know, I really look forward to you ruining the day you took this case. (laughs) I knew he was trouble the moment he walked in. Yes. Sounds like I better get a license north of the border if I'm only going to do hockey cases. Yeah, you really, the Canadian market's going to be pretty important for you. Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by Receptra Naturals, providers of premium, pure, CBD-rich hemp extracts, specially formulated for athletes and fitness enthusiasts. Ben and I have both tried their products, and at this point, we can both vouch for them. Ben used their topical cream to take care of his road rash after his cough, cough, helmetless bike wreck a month or so ago. I used the CBD oil to nurse one of my 40-year-old knees back to health while continuing to work out in the process. Ben, tell the kids at home what Receptra Naturals can do for them. Well, Chad, as they probably know by now, CBD works as a neuroprotectant, anti-inflammatory, and antioxidant, and it can have a host of positive effects on the body, including keeping you focused, sharp, and confident about your every move. Receptra Naturals has worked with MMA Hall of Famer Boss Rudin and Bellator's Joe Warren. From hobbyists, amateurs, to professionally contracted fighters, Receptra Naturals is in your corner. Check out their active lifestyle line of products featuring three hemp extracts, active, elite, and pro, each with a different strength and a unique blend of essential fatty acids like MCT oil, grapeseed oil, and avocado oil, as well as turmeric for additional anti-inflammatory benefits. Now, see, I got, I got called out on this on Twitter maybe a week or two ago. Turmeric, I believe is really? how you say it. Yeah. Turmeric, huh? Because I, I was with you. I said turmeric as well, uh, but I think it's Turmeric. All the uh, spice enthusiasts really jumped on you there? Yeah, the spice spice traders. 
Spice Traders came to get me. A lot of tweets from Morocco telling you what an idiot you are. Receptor Naturals is a cool company. They've been super great to work with over the past couple months for the CME. Take it from a couple of aging podcasters and their pile of trash bodies. If you need something to keep you in the gym, on the track, or in Ben's case, on the ice, you might want to check out the offerings from Receptor Naturals. As an added bonus for our listeners, the folks at Receptor Naturals tell me you can go online today and use the promo code CME15 to get 15% off your order. Again, that's ReceptorNaturals.com and the promo code CME15. New music alert. And this one I am particularly excited for. Our old pal, The Mind of Dre. You remember him, Ben? Oh, yeah. He's got a new album out. And we're going to be featuring tracks from that for at least the next couple weeks. I believe the album is called The Prescription. Okay. I like that. Is it spelled weird? No, no. Just The Prescription. Okay. And it's capital D dope, my friend. All right. Capital D. So we urge you to go check it out. You can find it at soundcloud.com slash themindofdre. Or follow him on Twitter at themindofdre. He hasn't tweeted in a while. He said he was going to get back into it. So I figured if we talked about it on the show. Yeah, put the pressure on him. Yeah, put, put the spurs down, kind of. Really? Light get, a fire under him. Get on that horse. And you got to make the first one a good one now that we, we hyped it up. See what I can do. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, 25 minutes of dinking and dunking, scratching out a point here and a point there, and Valentina Shevchenko wants to act all aggrieved after she loses a decision to champion Amanda Nunes. Vata country. And in round number two, oh, congrats. Did you was, like that? No, I did not. I, did, I hadn't really prepared that. No, really. should have run that one by me. Maybe a dry run? Yeah. Needed to workshop that one a little we bit could, more? We could definitely workshop that in one. In round number two, congratulations to Henry Cejudo for knowing that with Mighty Mouse versus Ray Borgoff, what the flyweight division needed was a dude to go out there and pretend to be Conor McGregor. And in round number three, Luke Rockhold is back from an extended hiatus, spent shirtless on the beach somewhere, just in time to spend the lead up to his fight against David Branch, I don't know, shirtless on a beach somewhere all that plus are you fucking kidding me just saying stuff and the return of master tweet theater but first like we always do about this time let's do a little bit of listener mail listener mail the first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from mr cool all right i can say confidently that mr cool is not a fullback for liverpool it's probably somebody's nickname though he writes, so RDA went in there and UFC'd the shit out of Magni on Saturday. And by that, I mean Mr. DA. See, okay, so this person is into formal address. All right, yeah. Mr. DA went in there, beat Neil Magni up, and caught a beautiful arm triangle, triangle in a few minutes. That marks two in a row for him. And while I normally like to see a couple more wins before a title shot, him and Woodley seems like too good of a matchup to pass up. His constant pressure game seems like it would force Woodley to engage, and it would be awesome. But T. Wood seems more interested in going to middleweight instead are you kidding me tell me am i wrong or is rda woodley the fight to book uh so ben your boy Rafael dos anjos goes out there gets his second straight win at welterweight uh after kind of falling off the map really at lightweight where he was the former champion before he lost back-to-back fights in 2016 lost his 155 pound title to eddie alvarez and then i believe lost also to a surging tony ferguson uh so we hadn't been talking about rafael dos anjos very much recently he goes up to uh to welterweight and now he's got two wins in a row this one against neil magny particularly impressive and if nothing else i'm gonna say rafael dos anjos put everybody at 170 on notice yeah i don't know how far uh He's going to go there, but uh, this win to me proved that 
Dos Anjos is back to being big trouble for almost anybody he fights. Yeah, and proves that he can go up there and not just be dwarfed by bigger fighters, which is one of the things you always worry about in that kind of weight jump. And, you know, like you said, the, the two losses with Eddie Alvarez, the one where he lost his lightweight title, you know, he got caught early on. That can happen to you. Um, and against a guy like Eddie Alvarez, that can definitely happen to you. Then he went out there in that fight with Tony Ferguson. That was a hell of a fight in which he did a lot of good things, but Tony Ferguson just did a lot of even better things. So it wasn't like he got utterly destroyed, but then he had to go up there and make a new life as a welterweight and signs are looking pretty good right now. And honestly, when I, I didn't really occur to me, maybe because it seems like a little bit of a dramatic jump to go, okay, you won two fights in the new weight class. Well, let's talk title shot, but I don't know. You start throwing around the idea of RDA versus Tyron Woodley, and uh, I, I kind of start to get a little wood watch tingle going on. Yeah, which no, I agree. Those are in short supply kind of for Tyron Woodley right now. Yeah, I, I, my former colleague from Bleacher Report, Patrick Wyman, who is now basically a podcaster to the stars. Full, full-time history guy. Full-time podcasting history guy, uh, thinks that Rafael Dos Anjos would be... Uh, one of the tougher matchups in that division for Tyron Woodley, just because of his skill set uh, and the pressure he brings. Uh, and, you know, as Mr. Cool here points out, I think it'd be a heck of a fight because it's certainly the way Dos Anjos fights certainly wouldn't allow Tyron Woodley to pull a Steven Thompson or Damian Maya uh, style performance. It wouldn't allow him to coast at all because, uh, you know, especially back when he was lightweight champ, Dos Anjos' thing was kind of being an in-your-face aggressive striker and a super hard-nosed grappler who would just kind of suck your soul out. So I think it would be super interesting to see him go up against Tyron Woodley. And a little bit, as we talked about last week, if you look at the 170-pound rankings, the top five is is clogged with dudes that Tyron Woodley has already beat. Stephen Thompson, Robbie Lawler, Damian Maya. Carlos Condit are all in the top five. Then you got Jorge Masvidal hanging out in there too. Uh, right after those guys, uh, you assume once the new UFC rankings come out, Rafael Dos Anjos is going to be knocking on the door of that top five. Yeah, and I guess the only thing that I wonder about is, you know, it's one thing to go up against guys uh, like Tarek Safradine and Neil Magny and, you know, we like we said, didn't seem like he was dealing with a problem of size or strength or power or anything. Uh, Tyron Woodley is a pretty powerful welterweight both just as far as wrestling ability and one punch knockout power uh, but I do think that it would be an interesting matchup with the thing I wonder is does the UFC look at Rafael Dos Anjos right now and go yeah we didn't exactly feel the star power the last time he was champion or something I think that that is a concern man you know what I forgot about Rafael Dos Anjos is that he lost the title to Eddie Alvarez on a fight pass only streaming That's event correct. that yes. went down the Thursday before UFC what 200, right? It's like they did the yeah, uh, one of those red, weeks. white and fight yeah. week and he lost on the uh, like Thursday or Friday night show. Uh, so basically like the lowest profile possible title defense that you can have. Uh, you know, the guy had only had one title defense. He spent basically 2014, 2015, uh, on a UFC star ass whipping tour, right? Beating uh, Nate Diaz, Anthony Pettis, Donald Cerrone, Benson Henderson. And it didn't really seem to get him too far in terms of like becoming a drawing card for the UFC. I don't know, man, especially in this day and age where we're, we're led to believe things are ruled by uh, drawing power and what kind of star you are. Maybe that is a hiccup in the career uh, of Dos Anjos here, but, but also... I don't know. I feel like you might even want to overlook that right now, unless you're saving that spot for George St. Pierre, which as you brought up last week, 
might be one of the sticking points here in, in the uh, RDA march to the welterweight title shot. Yeah, well, it's not exactly like you're squeezing a ton of star power out of Tyron Woodley right now anyway either, so. Yeah, I wonder if you put those two dudes on on like promotional scales, both of them on one side of a of promotional scales, like which guy would be the uh the more preferable choice to have as your welterweight champ. Sounds like what you're talking about is a welterweight title fight on a fight pass event on a Thursday night. I dig it. Okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Next question this week comes to us from Galore Bofon Don't. Nice. Okay. He writes Giblert, may that notorious Reebok fuck-up always live on Melendez, lost his fourth in a row on Saturday. He hasn't won since 2013, and I'm not sure what to make of him anymore besides the fact that he's a tough SOB. Uh, he's off the juice, or so we hope, and his reboot at 145 pounds didn't exactly go as planned. What's next for him? Uh, so yeah, Gilbert Melendez caught a bad one here in the curtain jerker in his featherweight debut against Jeremy Stevens at UFC 215. Uh, and he is now one and five in his last six, dating back to a split decision loss, uh, to Benson Henderson that was for the lightweight championship in April of 2013 and tucked in there the only win, a unanimous decision over Diego Sanchez at UFC 166. I feel like Gilbert Melendez, Ben, is going to be remembered as something of a UFC bust after he, uh, made a point of signing the big contract before he came in to the organization. And I feel like that, in and of itself, is kind of a damn shame. Yeah, I also think that it's worth noting, as I pointed out when somebody brought up something similar in the Twitter mailbag I wrote last week, that he had basically an entire well-traveled career before he even got to the UFC. So a lot of miles on Gilbert Melendez. You know, fought basically in every promotion that matters, from Pride, Strike Force, all over the place. Then finally shows up in the UFC and looked, you know, was a point or two away on a, one judge's scorecard from being lightweight champion when he fought Benson Henderson. And now I think, honestly, maybe Jeremy Stevens was accurate in his assessment after the fight to say that Gilbert Melendez has not maybe evolved as much as everybody else has. And we've seen it happen to a lot of guys who have been around a long time uh, and had a fighting style that really worked well in a different era. And now things have changed, especially in the, some of these lighter weight classes like lightweight and featherweight, where if you're not, incredibly sharp there's a ton of guys that can exploit you there and plus in this one it wasn't like he just got absolutely trucked you know he he never seemed to really be able to come back from that obviously really bad leg injury really early on suffered in the first round that's what i wanted to ask you about he's sitting on the stool there after the second round he clearly can barely stand for uh, an extended period of time, keeps falling to his back rather than standing there and keep taking those kicks in the shin. You hear him say to his corner, I think I might be done, bro. And then they talk him out of it, even like kind of shooing away the doctor who is standing right there listening to all this. And they're like, no, 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 he's fine. Don't pay any attention. Uh, do you feel like that's one where you might as well stop it since the guy clearly can't do a whole lot anymore? Well, number one, if you're Gilbert Melendez, there's no way that you want to go back to the scrap pack on Monday as the guy... Uh, who who took like a doctor's stoppage to get out of a fight, despite the fact that I think it would have been perfectly justified if you were Gilbert Melendez to want to take that. And also I will point out that the Scrap Pack, one of the only people I've ever seen actually throw a towel in a UFC fight. True, true. When Nick Diaz did it for his brother Nate when he was getting kicked upside his head by Josh Chomza. So they recognize that sometimes, you know, surrender is the smart move, especially if you're thinking about a future after that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. Not only, like, should the doctor have stopped it between rounds, but, like, 
whether or not the referee should have stepped in to stop it sooner. And I don't know whether the right answer is yes or no on that front, because it's almost like, can you stop a fight just because a guy appears to be in tremendous pain, right? Like Gilbert Melendez gets kicked in this leg. He goes down. Other than that, it seemed like he was able to, uh, compensate for it and get around on it well enough that it didn't like, I think after it didn't seem like it was broken after we got to at the, originally when he first got kicked, it did appear that like maybe it had been fractured or something. But after a few minutes of, of hobbling around on it in there, I think it didn't seem like it was broken. It didn't seem like he was in uh you know, tremendous physical danger and he was still quote unquote intelligently defending himself. But at the same time, can you stop a fight just because a dude is clearly super hampered by, uh, pain, I guess, uh, or, more than anything else. Like, do you remember uh, Jamie Varner's fight in the UFC against uh, James Krause, where he, like, he, he seemed to hurt his foot or his ankle, where basically it could not reliably support his weight anymore. Right. Like, he kind of rolled it over or something, or he got kicked on it, something, and it kept just like flopping loose on him, and he would collapse. And they stopped that one, I believe, like after a round or something. But it was a similar situation in that you know he was still in the fight. Aside from that, except just could not stay standing for yeah. long periods of time. And I do think that at, at those times, stopping the fight might be the best thing. And that's where I think your corner kind of has to do it for you because it's tough for a lot of those guys to be like, okay, look, I, I'm i not going to win this. I'm out of this fight because of this injury and I want to quit because you know how MMA fans love to jump all over people for stuff like that. That's where I think, though, your corner should realize, like, what are we doing trying to make it those last five minutes for? Like, what what's that for? Do we think it's because he has a legitimate chance of going out there and just throwing one big punch and catching the guy? Or is it because, like, we think that there are some tough guy points to be gained here by just seeing the final horn? And, I mean, he did get a bonus, a fight of the night bonus, which he probably wouldn't have gotten if he'd, he'd quit on the stool at the end of the second round. But it seems to me like sometimes we're not totally sure why we're doing stuff like this. Uh, and or that people will hold on to that any sliver of hope that you might still get lucky somehow and win this fight, and that will lead them to do stupid things. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, just uh, we get to the point where we're carrying on just to just for the point of it, just for like for pride' sake. Uh, and Gilbert Blend doesn't have to prove to us he's a tough guy. No, he does not. And like, I, I guess as a final word here, I would just say I hope that we don't get too UFC centric in our in our vision that Gilbert Melendez's greatness and like contribution to the sport eventually gets forgotten because back in those strike force days and he had the trilogy with Josh Thompson uh, and he was the longtime uh, lightweight champion there he was legitimately I think one of the best fighters in the world at that weight class uh, and I hope that we remember him as that and not as the dude who got his name misspelled uh, on the original Reebok fight kits that's true good point next question this week comes to us from Nate Amos he writes I keep reading people fighters etc saying there should be more weight classes am I in the minority not wanting more weight classes and belts floating around I can't help but think that the more number of weight classes the less meaning any individual belt actually has and I fear MMA will get into boxing territory where several fighters will lay claim to holding belts in multiple weight classes sorry I just can't get excited for light middleweight middleweight titles super middleweight extra chunky middleweight you get my point even if I'm making up some weight classes here also more importantly uh, where I like watching Conor McGregor fight does anyone really want to hear him talk so much shit about how he is the first and only fighter to hold four plus belts with new weight classes near his weight you're really going to tell me he's not going to try to lay claim to 145 150 150 
155, 165. Uh, you know he'd try that shit. Please discuss. Okay, he would try that shit. That is accurate. He would. And I think, like, you know, viewed through the lens of this last weekend, we're obviously talking about, uh, I think, the removal of Ray Borg from his flyweight title fight against Demetrius Johnson. We'll obviously talk about that specific instance a little bit more coming up later in the show but like i did see it floated out there that uh you know the that as a result of that situation like that should be used as evidence that mma should add all of these new weight classes uh and i kind of have mixed feelings about it personally and one of the reasons for those mixed feelings is exactly this scenario that nate amos brings up that like i don't think you want to get into a boxing type situation uh where the rules of mixed martial arts are any more complicated than they already are, you know, like, uh, or there's more to keep track of. Right. Yeah. Like there's more to keep track of. And like, it, you it like increases the barrier, I think to the casual fan being able to like seamlessly turn on a UFC or, or a Bellator event and enjoy it because they maybe don't know what's going on. Uh, I also for wonder a safety reason. Like I could see you kind of doing it for weight cutting purposes. Like maybe guys, don't have to cut as much weight if they just have to get down to 165 instead of 155. But like, I think that that is also a more complicated and nuanced discussion uh, to be had. Yeah. It's kind of like how we talked before. Does Kelvin Gaslam instantly become a champion if you have a 175 pound division? Uh, but the thing I also wonder about is in some of these lighter weight classes, sure, you could institute a weight in somewhere in the middle between two existing divisions and have enough people to populate it uh, and have like a competitive field in some other divisions and some other areas of the scale. I think we both know you could not do that. If you, if you created something between like middleweight and light heavyweight, good God, man, it would You're gonna be have a division with like three fighters in it. Yeah. Not to mention then light heavyweight would become a division with even fewer like good fighters in it. I think some of those weight classes, you would end up with champions who did not really feel like champions felt like they were succeeding mainly because there was not a whole lot of competition for them or because they, they left uh, a division where there actually was competition and went to one where there wasn't like that's, I guess what I would worry about in addition to it, but you're right. It's hard to say that when you have to recognize that at some points for like fighter health, maybe it would be a good thing. I, I still don't know if it would have the impact we sometimes hope it would on the culture of weight cutting and MMA. I think you're just going to get people doing different types of, of crazy shit to get to different types of weight classes. I don't think it would necessarily cut down on people trying to cut weight just to get that advantage. Does, and also, I guess in addition to that, my question would be, do you think it would solve this, the, the Ray Borg Demetrius Johnson issue? Because I mean, unless you think that Ray Borg just flat wouldn't be fighting at 125 pounds if there was another weight class available to him, which could be true since uh, he's missed weight twice in the UFC uh, three times already. Well, I mean, I guess he didn't make it the scale. Right, yeah, this would be the third time. Uh, but like, I just start to think, well, he knew, like, even if you have multiple weight classes, we still have a situation where if you're fighting for a title, you know that you're going to have to show up on a certain date and make a certain weight. So I'm not sure that like just adding more weight classes gets you totally clear of that problem, I guess. And especially like in a division like flyweight where you're kind of scrounging around for depth as it is, you know what I mean? Like uh, if let's say Ray Borg fights at 130 or something like that in a weight class that doesn't exist, would he turn down the opportunity to go down to 125 when initially offered a title fight against Demetrius Johnson? No. I doubt it. Yeah. Like, I think he would probably take that fight, and then you get a, you get right back 
into the situation where we are today. He would still have to show up uh, on the day weighing 125 pounds, which I think would still get you into trouble. Yeah. Agreed. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. Fights always fall apart. The newsletter itself is short, it's informative, we would like to think it's funny, and the upside is, if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Long before I taste the air, they hit my mama with that stare. Mix up drama with that fear before Obama even cared. That city one where I'm from to choose black and dead presidents. They probably rob you on the spot, the case gon' lag evidence. I bet you never judge again. I see niggas that make power moves, never ever budge again. From never ever budget 10. I slept with women that I'll never ever fuck again. I still got love for people that I'll never ever trust again. I feel electrified since I started connecting dots. I swear that I heard. Ben, the women's bantamweight title fight pitting Amanda Nunes against Valentina Shevchenko got bumped up to main event status at UFC 215 after Ray Borg got pulled out of that fight with Demetrius Johnson. Uh, so this is what we were all kind of waiting for through a uh, five-fight main card. Uh, the big cheese, the top-level banana. What, the top-level banana? Uh, it's just something I made up just right now. Again, we should really discuss this stuff beforehand. The crown jewel. Okay. UFC 215. Uh, turned out to be a split decision win for the champion, Amanda Nunez. She retains her title. I guess I'll just open it up uh, this way, Ben. Uh, what did you think of this fight? Well, I thought it was not a bad fight, though it got booed by some of the fans in Edmonton. I think maybe some of that is just because here this was the main event, uh, an event maybe where they felt like they weren't getting the best the USC had to offer to begin with, then you lose a main event, then you had some pretty good fights on the undercard, and then maybe this one was not quite as action-packed. A strategic, tactical fight, if you will. Um, but a fight like this, that is this close, and where you go through the first four rounds, at least, and it's really hard to say somebody clearly, definitively, inarguably won any one of those rounds. You could make an argument on pretty much every single one of them. Uh, and I could feel it heading into the fifth round. Like, whatever happens here, somebody is going to be more pissed off than they have a right to. And it just turned out that it was Valentina Shevchenko's turn. Uh, and sure enough, there she was, acting like she had just been straight up robbed at gunpoint of the UFC title, which should rightfully be hers. And I just don't see it, man. I mean, I can see for people who say, hey, I thought Shevchenko won. All right, yeah. Like, I can see how you would think that. People thought Nunes won. Sure, I'd see how you think that, too. I don't see how you can look at that fight and be like, okay, clearly, obviously, this person won. Yeah, I agree with you. Telling, I think, that the fight of the night bonus at UFC 215 went to Jeremy Stevens versus Gilbert Melendez. Uh, I guess on the bright side, you had arguably the two most technically sound strikers at this 135-pound division squaring off for the title. Uh, which for this division, I think, uh, is a good thing to have. But I do think that it's okay to draw a distinction between a technical fight and what did you call it? Strategic? Strategic. A strategic fight and a fight that is fun to watch. Like, I don't think there's any, uh, reason to pretend like 
we have to give it nothing but praise just because it was a technical fight. I didn't think it was uh, terribly fun to watch. And I'm just going to be honest and say that. Uh, And I think that that is one of the pitfalls of having this relatively new slate of UFC champions uh, that hasn't really totally connected emotionally with a, with a large level of fans. So it's like you have someone like Amanda Nunez who I like, uh, but I'm not terribly invested in her success or failure against Valentina Shevchenko, who's another person who I'm not terribly invested in emotionally. And I don't think a large number of fans are terribly invested in emotionally. And if two people like that go out there and just give you an absolute slobber knocker, it kind of makes the whole thing feel worthwhile. When two people go out there and have this kind of very cautious and technical fight over five, five minute rounds, it kind of makes the whole thing feel like a little bit of a letdown, at least in my opinion. So in this case, even though, as I've said time and time before, I think that it's cool in mixed martial arts that you have all of these different approaches kind of like, uh, in the, in the pot boiling together. Uh, and sometimes you get great results and sometimes you get rather tepid results. But like in this instance, I'm kind of with the people of Edmonton just being like, this is not the greatest thing in the world to watch. Yeah, I, I can see that. And especially because the rounds all looked, except for like the fifth round, the rounds all looked fairly identical. Yeah. And that was one of the things that surprised me about Valentina Shevchenko being so mad that she didn't win it because it is hard to win a close decision when you have your back up against the fence for most of the fight, when, you know, you're the one being pushed back, you're coming forward in, you know, the occasional Superman punch kind of lunging attack, and then you're back uh, to being pressed up against the fence and looking to counter punch. It's a hard, that's a hard way to win a, a decision in a close fight. You're yeah. not making things easier on yourself. In addition to that, I would say it's hard to win a decision in a championship fight fighting like that, even though I don't know that we're necessarily supposed to take that into account when we're judging fights, but maybe I also have a slightly old school tinge to part of my personality that thinks like, if you want to be the champion, you got to go out there and take it from the champ. And I'm not sure that this strategy and this fighting style for Valentina Shevchenko resulted in a performance where you could look at this thing and say like, okay, she definitely went out there and took the women's 135 pound championship from Amanda Nunes. Like I, I just didn't see that. Uh, and I, I kind of feel like if you have this very close decision, uh, you, at least my feeling is that it's right to kind of err on the side of the champion, even if that doesn't necessarily jive with the, uh, I don't know how you expect people to score a fight that way though. To be like, okay, that was a, a close round. Tie goes to the runner, man. <laughs> Tie goes to the runner. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's a good strategy for dealing with it. You're going to score it the way you know how to score fights. I don't think you can go in there with a different set of rules just because it's a, the champion. Yeah. Well, you're acting like. There's just a bunch of competent professionals sitting around with okay. a well-crafted, well-honed now that's a set of point. instructions for, for scoring a fight. Like if we had a system that I felt like worked better, maybe that wouldn't be, wouldn't be a, a, a point of contention. But like, I just kind of feel like in an instance like this, it would kind of be a letdown of Valentina Shevchenko walks out of this arena as the women's bantamweight champion, uh, for more reasons than just you would have to have a rematch. Yeah. Well. I think one of the things that I felt immediately after this one was, okay, that's two fights now, and it took us a couple tries to make the second fight. Even though this one was a close one, please just let us move on. Uh, because I am i don't see a whole lot of future in this rivalry you, uh, the more it goes on. Do you think that this style of fight is becoming more common, or am I just imagining that? 
that like it's more common now to get two really really evenly matched uh fighters who go out there and kind of hunt and peck strikes over 25 15 minutes yeah maybe i think if it is becoming more common, you can kind of look to uh, the comments made by Amanda Nunes after the last uh, fight where she pulled out and the, the comments then made by uh, her partner Nina Ansaroff before this one um, where and I thought Nina put it really well where she was just kind of talking about, you know, look, there's this is a lot of risk when you're the champion and you're finally making good money. And if you lose that title, then you're going to go back to making very mediocre money for the same amount of physical risk uh, to to go in there and fight. So once you have it, the the motivation and the the reward is all in keeping it. Like that's the only thing that you should really be focused on if you're thinking about you know you're taking care of yourself financially. You have to think about just let me hold on to this title. So, yeah, like I can see how it would make for a little bit of a more cautious fighting style, especially for somebody like Amanda Nunes who might have been worried about cardio in this fight, that you don't want to go out there, uh, especially when everybody expects you to just blitz in the first round and run out of gas and lose that way. You want to give yourself a chance by, you know, hunting and pecking, as you say, and staying in a little bit. Um and yeah, I mean, but Valentina Shevchenko, on the other hand, deserves exactly the same share of the blame for that because she was fighting a similar kind of style. Like she never got really aggressive. Nobody really hurt anybody at any point in this fight. Uh, so it was both people trying to win this, this game of inches, which you can't be surprised if you've ever seen this sport, if judges maybe didn't interpret everything the way you hope they would. What now for Amanda Nunez? We had uh, Sarah McMahon fumble a pretty big opportunity uh, in the featured prelim of this event. She loses to Kelton Vieira uh, via second-round arm triangle choke. If she would have won that fight in impressive fashion uh, at uh, number six on the official UFC women's bantamweight ranking, she could have been sitting pretty here maybe for a title shot. But now you have a situation where Valentina Shevchenko loses this close fight. Holly Holm may well go up to featherweight to fight... uh, Christian Christian Cyborg Justino, uh, Juliana Pena is out there. Ronda Rousey is almost certainly not coming back. And then Raquel Pennington also, uh, and Kat Zingano, I guess you could throw out as being in the mix. Yeah, that's one of the things I came away from this one wondering is where do you go just with this division in general? Isn't it weird to think that it was just a little over a year ago that Amanda Nunes won this title off of Misha Tate? And you were still, they still felt like you were in decent shape back when Misha Tate was the champion and back when Holly Holm was a champion. Like I saw, uh, I, I can't remember now exactly who, who did it. Um, but on Twitter, the, like kind of a flow chart of going from like, okay, Ronda Rousey, superstar, Holly Holm, woman who beat Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate. Okay. No, she was on the reality TV show. I know Misha Tate, Amanda Nunes. Okay. And right now, like, since it doesn't seem like, I guess the closest we've seen to like a good rivalry is her and Valentina Shevchenko, and that does not move that old needle a whole hell of a lot. It seems like you're, you're kind of in a doldrums right now with women's bantamweight. Yeah. And I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I think you, it's, we don't see any Ronda Rousey's percolating on the horizon, although you don't always, uh, see them from a long ways off, I guess. People like Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor have a, uh, a tendency to just kind of show up on the scene and then you when you notice them once you notice them they uh they become the the revelation the superstar but uh we'll just wait and see i suppose that's for right now though sir nigel Longsock's here we're gonna play master tweet theater it's been a little while since we did that we're excited to get into it that starts right now
What's that time again? We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am an inspiration to the youth. You Did you just call yourself an inspiration to the youth? Oh, yes. The youth look at me and they think, someday I want to grow up to avoid that. Well, that sounds familiar. That's kind of how Chad and I feel most weeks you come by. Uh, what do you got for us this week? Well, it's funny you should ask, sir. I have an exciting selection of tweets, all of which gather around the theme of free speech. Very free speech. All right. Well, Chad, th- how could he possibly fuck this up? <laughs> the only way he could fuck this up, is he going to read one that's just all emojis? Yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, even that would qualify as speech in, in this day and age, correct? Good point. Protected speech. <laughs> well, all right. I look forward to seeing how you're going to screw this one up. Whenever you're ready. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Bullfinch brand tactical megaphones. The military-grade megaphone for civilian use. Did you know that as an American citizen, you have the right to openly carry a megaphone and speak through it whenever you want? It's true. There's no law that says you can't use a megaphone at the movies, in the library, even in church. If people don't like you talking through a megaphone, they can buy their own. Remember, an audible populace is the best defense against tyranny. To paraphrase Martin Niemöller's famous poem, first they came for the megaphones, and I said something, because I had a megaphone. Oh yeah, I remember that poem. That was a good one. It's a very good poem. I memorized it in school. Yeah. Good Mm. for you. Yes, let us begin. The theme, in case you've forgotten, is very free speech. Ah, yes. Tweet the first. Healthcare is not a right. It is a purchased service. Okay. Sadly, I feel like I got this one. Chad, do you want to take a guess before I go ahead and nail it? I mean, it sounds like maybe a Pat Militich type individual. Uh, I guess I'm going to say Pat Militich. Why not? Well... It is a slightly less pas- Pat Militich, Pat Militich, uh, by which I mean Tim Kennedy, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that it, also makes sense. It is, it is Tim Kennedy. There is something about being in the military or being a giant guy who can beat everyone up that makes you less sympathetic to others. <laughs> you know, I, I would have said before I became Facebook friends with Pat Militich that this was, uh, just a kind of run of the mill Pat Militich view, but I have learned in Facebook comments to things I post, that Pat Militich had some more extreme views, let's say. Okay. A lot, lot of conspiracies. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Conspiracies, like conspiracies you haven't even heard of. It's kind of impressive. Huh. All right, then. Tweet the second. Breath intentionally. Orgasm regularly. Move toward fear away from judgment. Living shouldn't be life and death. Smile, human. This is fun. What the hell? What what newly sentient robot wrote that? Indeed, sir. Or was it Teruto Ishihara? <laughs> I'm going to say Teruto, Teruto Ishihara. Uh, that is a good guess. I used to know who this was. A uh, tiny Brazilian lady that just fought Joanna Yedjechik. Oh, uh, Claudia Gedalia? Is that one? No, no, the other one. Okay. I'll just say Claudia Gadella, even though I know that's not right. It is! It oh. is Claudia Gadella! <laughs> See the way we worked our way around to that? I deserve like half a point for that one. This is the way I drew it up at halftime. That was the play I was going to run. You do not get full credit for that. Ben and Chad may split the point on Tweet the Second. Tweet the Third. I would say it's a huge win for MMA. Thanks, McGregor. 
how is that spelled? Hugh, capital H, capital U, capital G, capital H. Okay. A so, Hugh win. So the person's name. Mm, indeed. Sir. Is everything else capitalized or is it just that? No, and there is no punctuation except for the apostrophe in its. Okay. Well, at least that's right. Um, who thinks this is a Hugh win? Conor McGregor. Whose phone autocorrects to the name Hugh? Oh, okay. Mm, now we're getting somewhere. Uh, so I'm thinking a fighter of a certain age? Because you, they... You gotta be over 30 to know some Hughes, right? Or it's like an older relative. Just guy. I'm gonna go Frank Shamrock here. Both right. fine guesses, both apt to befriend an older man, and both wrong, it is Mark Kerr. Okay. Hey, the, your reasoning, I was on the right track. Your reasoning is sound. You know Mark Kerr knows some Hughes. I bet you start digging through Mark Kerr's background, you find a couple wrestling coaches named Hugh. Yeah. I'll bet that there's just a plethora of Hughes out there in his life. He's rebranding. I think he should rebrand as British. The Smashing Machine, Mark Kerr. Get it? Because smashing, he's a smashing machine. Let's go, let's move on. Indeed, <laughs> let's. Tweet the fourth. Shut up, stupid. I'll slap your mom. <laughs> I've said it before and I'll say it again. That's why you get a theatricalist, Chad. That's why you spend the money. Because he's like, not just going to go at it the way you think he is. He's going he's gonna, to, you know, imagine him in the bathroom mirror before he came over here trying a few of these out. And he decided to go with this. Let's hear it one more time. Shut up, stupid. I'll slap your mom. Tony Ferguson. That's a good guess. Uh, this sounds almost like a Dana White reply, although I'll slap your mom as... Uh... Yeah, that's not usually how he goes. He usually will go, uh, look at your stupid picture, yeah. uh, which if I look like chubby Lex Luthor, I'm not sure that would be my main go-to burn, or like you have no followers or something like that. doesn't usually threaten violence he, against people's parents. He would have stopped at shut up stupid. Right. Uh, Kevin Lee. Both fine guesses, both liable to slap your mom, and both wrong. It is Tanya Evinger. Oh, Tanya Evinger will slap your mom. Like, she won't just threaten. She will actually do that shit. Indeed. Wait, Dif is, is shut up stupid what she tweeted also in response when Brennan Schaub said he felt bad for her? I think it's something like that. starting to seem like maybe shut up stupid is Tanya Evinger's tagline. Do we know whose mom she was threatening to slap here or promising to slap? Uh, an unknown Twitter user who had called Julie Kedzie a bitch and a reverse sexist. Oh, okay. That's the worst kind of sexist. My only complaint there is it seems like maybe the wrong person's getting slapped in that equation. Indeed, sir. Tweet the fifth. USADA is a crock of shit, and the bald prick USADA guy has no dick. Why didn't they catch him? <laughs> what? Why didn't oh. they catch him before the fight? Crooked as fuck. Cock eye emoji scum. What? Cock eye emoji scum? I believe that he is accusing them of being cock gazing scum, but that is my theatricalist interpretation. Is there an emoji in this, or is it just is that spelled out? Yes. Cock and then the okay. eyes okay. emoji. So maybe cock looking scum, like the the bald Usada guy with no dick, ironically <laughs> looks like a cock. Okay, now that we got it kind of mapped out, can we hear it one more time? Oh, yes. USADA is a crock of shit, and the bald prick USADA guy has no dick. Why didn't they catch him before the fight? Crooked as fuck. Cock eye emoji scum. What the hell, man? Is it, is, would it be spoiling anything to tell us? Is this in reference to the John Jones situation? Yes, I believe it was. <laughs> Why would you have to attack 
Jeff Nowitzki is yeah. not even the USADA guy. He works for the UFC. <sighs> no dick, though. It's tragic. Well, okay. We think it's somebody outside the UFC here because um, I'm going to say Josh Thompson. That's an interesting guess. Uh, I know on DC's behalf. I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Um, I know that this guy is outside the UFC now and I think has beef with the drug testing. So I'm going to say filthy Tom Lawler here. Oh, okay. Both fine guesses, both outside the UFC and both wrong. It is the poet Philip Baroni. Damn it. Oh man, we should have. That's, that's got the poet Philip Baroni written all over it. Yeah, we kind of played ourselves there. God Indeed, yeah. sirs. Long-standing beef with you, Sada. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess that's it for Master Street Theater. What else you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I just finished shooting an exciting film about the ghost of an insane serial killer who stops murdering children in their dreams and starts bringing them toys. And what's it called? It's called Freddy's Dead, The Nightmare Before Christmas. And what role do you play? I play the ghost of an insane serial killer reindeer. I believe that. That was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Long before I taste the air, they hit my mama with that stare. Mix up drama with that fear before Obama even cared. Ask anyone where I'm from to choose black or dead presidents. They probably rob you on the spot. The case gon' lag evidence. I bet you never judge again. I see niggas that make power moves never ever budge again. From never ever budget 10. I slept with women that I'll never ever fuck again. I still got love for people that I'll never ever trust again. I feel electrified since I started connecting dots. I swear that I heard. Well, Chad, UFC 215 was supposed to be the night that UFC history was made. Probably. Maybe. Very likely. Demetrius Johnson going in there against Ray Borg, going in as like an 8-1 to one favorite against Ray Borg. If he wins, he gets the title for the, the most consecutive title defenses in UFC history. Uh, right now, he's tied with Anderson Silva. Uh, and then, in just a... A twist of the knife from the MMA gods after Demetrius Johnson had uh, balked at the TJ Dillashaw fight because he was worried that TJ Dillashaw wouldn't make weight and therefore it wouldn't be a title fight and therefore he wouldn't get the record that he wants more than anybody else seems to want. Then Ray Borg has this issue where a viral illness, we're told, gets him pulled from the fight. And just a little more rain falls onto the little bald head of Demetrius Johnson. Now, how first of all, when you heard that you weren't going to get to see this fight, this was off the, the fight card, what was your initial reaction? Was it, oh, man, I was really looking forward to that? Or was it just, well, that, that weakens this card still further? It made me feel like I couldn't even go to sleep, man, because this thing broke after midnight, right? I didn't find out about it until I woke up the next morning, like, innocently checking my social media. So you slept fine because you didn't hear about it, so you were asleep yeah i was asleep and then i wake up in the morning and i was like god damn it i can't even go to sleep and i guess my my reaction <laughs> so you thought if you would have stayed up all night it yeah. would have, everything would have been fine yeah probably okay in a superstitious kind of way all right maybe i'll just not sleep during fight weeks yeah next time there's a big fight man look out see how that works out yeah uh this this hurt man like i was looking forward to watching demetrius johnson fight i always i always like to watch demetrius johnson fight uh and and to see him you know, break the uh, the record of of Anderson Silva's consecutive UFC title defenses was not going to be meaningless. I think he eleven title defenses <laughs> is eleven title defenses, and is a great accomplishment for Demetrius Johnson. So I was excited to see that, even though it's not like 
a hallowed number, so to speak. It's not the Joe DiMaggio hit streak or the you know home run record or anything like that. It would still be somewhat meaningful to watch him set that record. Uh, and like I said in the last round, I kind of anticipated that Amanda Nunez and Valentina Shevchenko weren't gonna weren't gonna stir up too many emotions for me, no matter how how that went. So not having Demetrius Johnson on this card, at least for me, and maybe I'm in the vast minority here, like uh, that did hurt. I did think that that weakened this card a lot. Were you going into this beforehand assuming Demetrius Johnson's going to win this fight? Absolutely. Yeah. You, me, and everyone else on God's green earth, except for Ray Borg and his team, See, probably. That's what what I felt like maybe made me not exactly heartbroken to see it uh, pulled from the card was basically because I felt like, okay, we're all showing up to watch Demetrius Johnson get this record. And, like, you know, he's going to be probably flawless in his execution when it comes to the fight because he always is. But it didn't feel to me like... All right, can he do it? Will he or won't he? It felt like he's going to, and we're all just going to get to share in that moment, and that's basically the appeal here. So maybe I wasn't too terribly sad about losing that one, with the exception that, okay, now we got to do this all again? we got to ramp up for this all again? Because I don't know if people were that excited about this record to begin with. At least nobody's as near as excited about it as he was. It also feels to me like a classically MMA point of view to have this reflect poorly on Demetrius Johnson. Yeah, yes, right? Because yeah. like the guy who did absolutely nothing wrong. Right. It's like not Demetrius Johnson's fault in the least or in the slightest, but because there was the tiff over TJ Dillashaw and the very reason, as you pointed out, that Demetrius Johnson didn't want to fight TJ Dillashaw, or so he said, was that uh, he wanted to be sure that he would have someone who would make weight, make the title fight official. Then you have Ray Borg pulled you know, 12 hours before the weigh-in or whatever it was. Uh, so you know there's some jerks online that are that are firing off on their Twitter pages like, oh, Demetrius Johnson should have just fought TJ Dillashaw, dummy. Like, <laughs> just what a what a classic, classically MMA point of view. To plenty like of, plenty think, of jerks think that, that seems, this is somehow Demetrius Johnson's fault. Plenty of jerks had some words for Ray Borg as well, judging by some of his Twitter outbursts. And I honestly, I got to say, when you go out of your way to be like, okay, Ray Borg is out of this fight, you know, the the night before weigh-ins basically uh, due to a viral illness and everybody's trying really hard to convince me that it had nothing to do with the weight cut, that only makes me more suspicious that it had a lot to do with the weight cut. Because, I mean, I'm not saying that he did not catch a viral illness, but that could be a lot easier to catch if your weight cut is going terribly poorly. Um, otherwise you're just trying to sell me on like, Hey, it was just bad luck. Anybody can get super sick at any time, which is true. However, you did miss weight in two of your last four attempts. So already there's a little bit of suspicion on you. I'm just saying, seems like that one was a little hard to buy. Yeah. And like three times is you're getting up there into sort of like Johnny Hendricks style territory now with, with Ray Borg, where as you asked earlier in the round, is this the kind of thing that you want to go through the trouble of setting up again. I know Demetrius Johnson wants to turn around and do it uh, ASAP UFC 216 or something like that. Uh, but there were, in fact, been some somewhat interesting developments in the flyweight division on this card, despite the fact that the champion didn't get to go out there and defend his belt. And that obviously was Henry Cejudo showing up and looking like a different person and going out there and defeating Wilson Hayes uh, via second round TKO, suddenly looking... Uh, dangerous on his feet or like 
as I guess you might expect from an athlete, the caliber of Henry Cejudo, like he's improving in leaps and bounds in his, in his MMA styles and his MMA skill set. Uh, good enough to make you want to see him fight Demetrius Johnson again? Not Question mark? Y- not yet, no. Not, not right re- away. No. I mean, he did look really good. He went out there and just kind of acted like, uh, Wilson Hayes had nothing for him, but I feel like it was still fairly recently and that was a really one-sided fight between Demetrius Johnson and Henry Cejudo. Honestly, if you're asking me now, I gotta pick somebody like an actual flyweight, uh, to see go up against Demetrius Johnson. I say Sergio Pettis. You know, he just got that win over Brandon Moreno, uh, in August. Now he's got, what, four straight? Uh, he, he was the one that Demetrius Johnson liked anyway because he thought he had a better name value than Ray Borg. Uh, you know, I, the only thing I don't like about it is it seems like you're still, Sergio Pettis still very young and probably going to be overmatched as everyone in the division is going to be overmatched against Demetrius Johnson. So maybe you worry a little bit about rushing him too much, but I don't know, man. At this point, he's got a bunch of UFC fights. He's been at it for a while. I could, I could get into that one. Yeah. Young Serge. Yeah. Let's do it book it as far as i'm concerned okay i'm glad we settled that it was striking to see henry cejudo show up and look like he had uh spent the last several months locked in his basement surrounded by stacks of dusty conor mcgregor vhs cassette tapes so right (laughs) no i mean let's not forget that henry cejudo used to walk out in like a full costume before the Reebok era kind of put a, like he, he knows a little bit of something about self-promotion uh, when given a chance. I feel like he can do something there for you. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm pleased with uh, the direction he seems to be headed in all regards. Pleased with the direction of Henry Cejudo is Ben folks. Uh, let's do, are you fucking kidding me? And then we will move on to round number three. Ben, what's your, are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, Chad, I don't know if you uh, spent time watching the prelims on this one, but Rick Glenn and Gavin Tucker go out there, and uh, Gavin Tucker gets hurt early, gets, uh, from what he said afterwards, uh, a fracture in his jaw in the first round. It only gets worse in the second, and then gets worse still in the third, to the point that when you get around to the scores, one of them gave Rick Glenn the fight 30-25, the other one 30-24, because of a rarely seen 10-7 round in the third which is another way of saying to referee Kyle Cardinal, man, what the hell is wrong with you? Why didn't you stop this fight? Are you fucking kidding me? Also, to Gavin Tucker's corner, why didn't you stop the fight after the second round? Are you fucking kidding me? He was beat to shit, Chad. There was no reason to send him out there just to get beat up again. He was exhausted, had nothing left, and then he ends up in the hospital with four different fractures in his face. For what? Are you fucking kidding me? And again... Isn't this the same city, Edmonton, where Tim Haig just died after getting dropped three times in the first round in a boxing match and then coming out there for the second? Have we learned nothing? Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, immediately after that fight, Team Dundas women's bantamweight Sarah Morris goes out there and breaks the arm of Ashley Evan Smith. Maybe just dislocates it. Whatever. Good enough. Uh, in the, in the first round, uh, gets on the mic with Joe Rogan and says that she hopes it's broken. Dislocated. Which is one of those things where you seem really nice, Sarah Morris, but you hope it's broken? Maybe I've misjudged you. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I also want to say that it was awesome that they pointed out on this broadcast that Sarah Morris's fiancé is named Cleve Bentley, which you know that guy has a superhero alter, e- alter ego. <laughs> like, ain't nobody running around here named Cleve Bentley unless they go out as, like, Darkwing at night. 
Why are Cleve Some kind of Batman, Batman, Canadian Batman-style figure? Why are Cleve Bentley and Darkwing never in the same place at the That's, same time? Uh, good question. Inquiring minds want to know. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Long before I taste the air, they hit my mama with that stare. Mix up drama with that fear before Obama even cared. Ask anyone where I'm from to choose black and dead presidents. They probably rob you on the spot. The case gon' lag evidence. I bet you never judge again. I see niggas that make power moves. Never ever budge again from never ever budget ten. I slept with women that I'll never ever fuck again. I still got love for people that I'll never ever trust again. Well, Ben, it's been a hot minute since we saw Luke Rockhold. Emphasis on the word hot. Man, you're really hung up on this, aren't you? Just saying, he hasn't fought since uh, June 2016 when he got knocked out by Michael Bisping. And in the interim, let it be known that he would have no problem taking an indefinite hiatus from the octagon in order to pursue his newly found modeling career. That's an exact quote from his Wikipedia page. <laughs> then he shows up in the promo for this fight, all shirtless on the beach, running around like Rocky III. Uh, I know you took note of that. Seemed like maybe it was one of those where Hard Chad, not to. Chad Dennis Speaking was going to chastise it as being overly erotic. Um, but now Luke Rockhold is back. I got to say, I missed the son of a bitch. No, it is good to have Luke Rockhold back in the cage, although... Uh, remember that the big sticking point here with the UFC after this first round knockout loss to Michael Bisping was that Luke Rockhold wasn't, wasn't going to put his shoes on. I was going to say put his shoes on, but like take his shoes off, I guess, as the case may be, unless they went out and found him a big fight. I don't is remember it, that, but is okay. Is a main event slot against Dave Branch big enough for you? Well, I guess it had to be big enough for Luke Rockhold. And maybe, and that's where one instance where sitting out for a while did not really help him because the middleweight division kind of moved on and proved to have a whole lot of talent in it. So it kind of got to a point when the USC could say to him like, Hey, look, we'd like to have you back, but we don't need to have you back. Uh, which probably did not help his negotiating position though. I guess, you know, on paper, Dave branch comes in there, um, as the, the middleweight champion from WSOF before it became PFL, uh, got himself a really hefty winning streak, Get got that one, you know, split decision kind of uninspiring win over Christoph Jocko in the UFC as his to to start off his his new UFC run. But a a win's a win. Um, and then he's gonna show up making videos in a barber shop, talking all kinds of shit on uh, on his cell phone to Luke Rockhold, even though somehow you're in a barber shop and you, you still got your hat on, which I don't know how that one works, but uh, okay. Um, I don't know. That got me a little more excited to see it. The executive Dave, the executive branch, gonna go in there. And uh, maybe get a little heat going. Luke I was just—I was just gonna say, Dave, the judicial branch seems like uh, he is revealing himself as kind of an awesome dude in the lead up to this fight. Talking about how he didn't lose his titles to Michael Bisping, he gave him away to come <laughs> chase this it's one. A, it's a good one. That's it's a, a good, good line. line. Yeah, it's a good line, Dave Branch. Uh, I guess I—I I, I do want to talk a little bit more about Dave Branch as this round goes on. But like, what kind of a figure do we see Luke Rockhold as in this division now? Clearly, you know, we remember he took the title off Chris Weidman at UFC 194, what seems like a lifetime ago in the middleweight division back in December of 2015. God, uh, how, how is it that it's not quite two years ago since that? I know. And then, you know, the shocker in losing this title defense to Michael Bisping as a late replacement as what shaped up as a gimme fight for, for Luke Rockhold. 
old. He returns now. Uh, he's about to turn 33 years old next month. How do you see Luke Rockhold in this division, Ben? Is uh, Like you just said, you were excited for his return, but is he a guy, has any of the luster come off of him, I guess, given this loss and this lengthy absence? I think only because he's been kind of out of sight, out of mind. I don't think, you know, that loss to Michael Bisping, I when you look at that one, it seems like it's not hard to believe that he just did not respect Bisping's power, did not give him enough credit for what he was able to do, uh, and you know, got a little careless and got caught. You know, I'm sure that's what everybody's going to say, whether it's true or not. But that one, I kind of believe that. And I'm sure that one really ate at him and everything. But being gone this long, you do wonder a little bit about what kind of shape he's going to be in, how his timing and everything is going to be, uh, and, you know, how seriously he's taken his preparations and whether he's really ready to come back. But I don't if if he is physically and mentally there, if he is motivated and really wants to come back and make a run at this, then I don't see any reason why he couldn't charge right back into that title picture among the top two or three guys in the division. Yeah, we've definitely seen him at times look like, you know, one of the more impressive athletes in that division, a big guy at 185 pounds, mobile, uh deadly dangerous with his strikes this is an interesting fight though against dave branch who is a guy who at this point i think we're still trying to get a bead on exactly how good he is as you said he's got the winning streak that goes back all the way uh to november of 2012 he was the world series of fighting middleweight champion he was the world series of fighting light heavyweight champion i believe uh and then beat christoph jotko by split decision at ufc 211 uh but he's a guy that uh that we're still sort of trying to get a feel for in now that he has returned to the octagon. And for that reason, I think maybe a tricky matchup for Luke Rockhold, a guy uh, who doesn't have a, a a high profile in this division, but at the same time might be a super, super tough dude. And a guy that, as you said, Luke Rockhold needs to have taken very seriously in his preparation and a guy who's probably not going to give him the opportunity to look rusty because Dave Branch is a, is a guy uh, who will go out there and take it from you if you if you are not ready to go. Yeah, uh, and I guess, are you, is that a world you're ready to live in where Dave, the executive branch, goes out there and supplants Luke Rockhold uh, up there at the top of the middleweight rankings? I could warm up to it. Okay. Does he have any more sweet one-liners? There's only one way to find out. <laughs> That's right. There is only one way to find out. But you look at the betting odds for this. I don't, have you looked at the odds? I have not. Take a guess. I think Luke Rockhold is a three-to-one favorite. Not too far off, looking at about four, four and a half to one. Oh wow! He's so he's he's a uh, he's more than a three to one favorite. Yeah, he's more than a four to minus four fifty. Uh, seeing Dave Branch in the the high threes, high high to mid threes, um, and I guess I'd say that's about right. I mean, you you do wonder a little bit about when a guy's been off as long as Luke Rockhold has, but skill for skill, this seems like a fight he should win. And I, let's say. Just for the sake of argument, he does win it. Is this a big enough win to put you right back into, you know, thinking title shot for your next fight? Or is it just a little too crowded up there, especially since you got Michael Bisping uh, playing cash the payday with George St. Pierre? I was just going to say interim title fight, question mark. <laughs> okay. I mean, are we still looking for a uh, a foe for Bobby Knuckles? Robert Whitaker still need a date, or do we have something set up for him? Well, I think he's going to be out a little while. Well, I don't know if they know for sure yet uh, with that that knee that got all janky on him uh, in the UL Romero fight. But, yeah, I don't think he's 
super ready to go right now. Well, that is an interesting question for Luke Rockhold, though, because like you said, let's say he steamrolls Dave Branch. He's back. He's back in the mix. But at the same time, we have no idea what's going on with the 185-pound title right now. George St. Pierre takes that thing away from Michael Bisping. Uh, all bets are off in a lot of different ways. I mean, if Michael Bisping beats George St. Pierre, that's sort of tailor-made for you if you're Luke Rockhold to uh, restart up the hot feud with Michael Bisping uh, and go out there and try to get your title back. Uh, you know, Yoel Romero, Jacare Souza, Chris Weidman, still, uh, recognizable faces right there at the top of the 185 pound top 10. Yeah, but he fought Jacare, uh, fought Chris Weidman. You know, Yoel Romero would be interesting, I guess. Um, but I don't know. If you're telling me you go out there, you beat the shit out of David Branch and, and finish it, and then you get on the mic and say, Michael Bisping, you're taking everything I worked for, motherfucker. Uh, go full Nate Diaz on it. Um, to the point where since it's on Fox Sports 1, they have to bleep out the entire thing. You don't get a little more excited about that? You don't sit around going, no, I do, man, I, do. I wish that's we were the, seeing that fight next. Like I said, that's the uh, the perfect setup for Luke Rockhold. It just remains to be seen exactly what is going to happen. Uh, let me lay this on you, though, Ben. Out of the box possibility for Luke Rockhold. What if Kelvin Gastelum just torches Anderson Silva when they, these guys finally meet up later this year? You looking... Would you be interested in Luke Rockhold versus Kelvin Gastelum? No. Too big? Yes. Too big for Kelvin Gastelum? Yeah. Well, if he's going to be hanging around in the middleweight division, that's the kind of dudes you're going to have to fight at some point. I don't know. I don't know, man. Can we find somebody a little bit smaller for him? <laughs> what are you, his manager? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Come on. Let's do me a solid here with Kelvin. <laughs> he just needs eight minutes of good work. Uh, all right. You want Haven't do, we been in this business together a long time? You want to do? Just, don't do me like this. You want to do just saying stuff? All right. Then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? Well, Chad, did you hear that Nick Newell is coming back? I did not. Got an email today from uh, LFA saying that they had signed Nick Newell to a multi-fight deal. Now, this, I have to say, saddened me a little bit because I remember talking to Nick Newell, I believe it was in 2015, when he retired, uh, saying basically that his body was just too beat up, had too many injuries, uh, and just couldn't do it anymore. His body was in bad shape from too many years of wrestling and then MMA. Uh, and, you know, physically could not keep this up. And then he goes away for a couple of years, and I feel like maybe this is what happens that you see sometimes with a guy who his body gets beat up from doing MMA, takes a couple of years off, starts to feel good, and then thinks, oh, yeah, remember that thing that made my body feel like trash to begin with? Let me go back and do that. I'm just saying, it tells you something about this sport when... A guy like Nick Newell re comes out of retirement and you feel a little sad, uh, you know what I'm saying? Or, as we saw uh, this weekend at UFC 215 with the most Canadian of retirements by Mitch Clark uh, after his loss to Alex White, you hear a guy saying, all right, he's decided that's it, he's going to give it up, and you feel a little happy. I'm just saying, that tells you something about the nature of this cruel sport. Just saying. Well, Ben... A couple weeks ago, we got a rad email from Jed B that I don't think we read on the podcast. But as part of it, he asked, uh, what's the best option moving forward for Daniel Cormier? And one of the options that he presented for Daniel Cormier was grow a big beard. All right. Which, not the worst idea yeah. in the world. Go like Al Gore post-election uh, loss thing. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to say, was I the only one that noticed that this week seemed like Daniel Cormier was getting a little loose on commentary? Okay. Like a little bit looser than normal. Like, he's out there just having a blast. Can you cite some examples? Oh, he's just having a great time. 
Like he, every time he, he would sort of predict the future of what would happen in a fight and it would happen, he would get all crazy and talk to Joe Rogan about it. Just seemed like he was having a blast out there. I wonder if we are witnessing the rebirth of Daniel Cormier, all the pressure off. It's his version of growing that big beard. He's yeah. just uh, he's going out there and having fun these what days. What was the facial hair situation? I don't know. I assume the same as ever. Okay. I well, mean, don't we, know if I got a lot of FaceTime. We might want to closely monitor that. A big beard might be on deck. That's right. Just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, We will be back next week to tell you all the stuff that happens at this UFC fight night featuring the main event between Luke Rockhold and Dave Branch. And then, if you're lucky, we'll go ahead and look forward to UFC Fight Night 117, Shogun vs. St. Prue 2. Oh, boy. That one's going down in uh, at Saitama Super Arena, though. Oh, come Over on. there in Japan. Anyway, uh, that's going to do it for this week's show. We are done. We are through. We are out. You know what you can do? Like for the people who just facially incapable of growing a big beard, you know what else you can do in that situation? Uh, signature hat. Okay. Become a hat guy. Yeah. But it has to be like, you know, like an Indiana Jones hat, but definitely not that. Definitely a better hat. Like, like Daniel Cormier probably doesn't want to go full cowboy hat, but no. maybe like a... Uh, one of those wide-brimmed 